in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Hi, I'm Rob Kane. Welcome to Ancient Rome Refocused. This is season one of a six-part podcast on the subject of ancient Rome. In episode one, we'll discuss what did the Romans ever do for us? If you like the show, send me an email at rob at ancientromerefocused.org or go to our blog site at http colon backslash backslash ancientromerefocused.org. Just remember, ancient Rome refocused is one word. There, you can read a transcript of each episode and share with us any comments you might have. I promise you, I will not just recite dates or who said what to whom on the show. There will be no term or thesis papers read out loud. This is not a college course. What I plan to do is explore ancient Rome while keeping a firm footing in the now. That means we will be making plenty of comparisons between then and now. For example, we'll look at movies, art, drama and government today, and how each has been inspired by the Romans. So we can just as easily talk about the HBO series Rome, interview an author, discuss an archaeological dig, or even go live to a gladiatorial reenactment. I will also take suggestions from you for future podcasts. History is for the brave. It isn't all in well-swept libraries or between the covers of a book. Sometimes you have to go out and get dirty to find the truth. What we know about the Romans comes from artifacts, dust-covered antiquities, histories, painstakingly copied by Muslims to be picked up later by curious Christians. History comes from poetry, plays, letters, accounts of wine shipments on yellowed parchment. It comes from TV news reports around fours of wine laid out upon the ocean floor, burial crypts, and even letters found underneath a staircase from a Roman soldier that missed his home in Alexandria. All of these things have been found one time or another, unearthed or lifted out from the bottom of the ocean, or even discarded poems from a Greek poet were even found in an ancient garbage pile. The past comes to us through pieces, often broken pieces, and we have to put it together like a a jigsaw puzzle in hopes of learning something. At my mother's house is a carved relief of Henry V and his knights before the Battle of Agincourt. It's beautiful. In the relief, they march from left to right in a column. Their tunics and flags are brightly painted in gold, reds, and greens. The knights are upon their horses, attended by their squires. I found it in a shop in Stratford-on-Avon when I visited England. I stared at it in the shop, entranced by its beauty, and literally stood there for ten minutes before the owner walked up behind me to whisper, It's beautiful, isn't it? And it was. Three pieces of ceramic taken from a mold of a relief found in a medieval church. Back in the States, I asked my father for help in hanging it on the wall. Traveling with the army, I had few places to call my own, so I asked to hang it at my parents' house over the fireplace. It was placed in a gold frame with a light on top, like something you might see in a museum. This made it even heavier, and trying to hang it up was even more impossible. After Dad had placed a nail into the wall to hang a, to hang a hook, We had trouble finding the exact spot where it needed to catch on the wall. Not only was it terribly top-heavy, we couldn't find the hook. If you ever hung a picture on a wall, you know what I'm talking about. Well, eventually, we thought we had found the spot, and my dad slowly relaxed his grip 
thinking it was secure, but rather staying on the wall, it slipped from his hands and crashed down on top of the fireplace counter with a loud bang. My dad's face dropped. Rob, he said, I think it cracked. From his voice, I knew it was worse than that. It had shattered. Cracks ran through it, left and right, up and down. I had framed it so tightly that it had miraculously stayed together. Without the frame, it would have been in pieces. At first I was horrified, but somehow looking at it closer, I noticed something wonderful. It looked better than it did. The cracks aged it, making it look like I had dug it, dug it up on an archaeological dig or had stolen it from a cathedral in Europe. Don't worry, I told him, it looks great, and actually it did. Those of you who want to see it, I'll put a photo on the blog site. The Agincourt scene still hangs on that wall above the fireplace, and occasionally on Christmas, my sister decorates it with ivy and Christmas lights. My point for telling you this story is that history comes in pieces. It's up to the historians to piece it together and to take whatever facts you have and interpret them according to the times. This is called historical context. This is where we try to understand the past by looking at the facts and circumstances that surround the situation or event. And I believe more often than not, we frame history in the context of the modern day. We can't help it. We're biased by the times we live in. It's who we are. It's how we see the past. Let's begin with the often asked question, what did the Romans ever do for us? One answer comes from the irreverent English comedy group Monty Python and their movie, The Life of Brian. They let us wipe the bastards. They've taken everything we had. And not just from us, from our fathers, and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. Yeah, all right, Stan, don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? of the Holy Land during the time of Christ. To get the humor, one must not only listen to the punchlines, but pay attention to the individuals performing the skit. I just don't mean their names, such as, and you've heard these names before, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, John Gleese, and Eric Idle, but the fact they're British. If the skit was performed by a Japanese comedy troupe, it would still be, with the proper translation, a funny skit, but not half as funny as the fact that the skit is being performed by the sons and grandsons of the people that ruled what is known as the British Empire. My mother figured it out. She was born in Maidenhead, England, and came to the United States in the late 20s. 
This was a no-brainer for her. One Saturday afternoon, I went to see the movie and dropped by later to tell her about it. The following are her exact words. You could say that about the British and all the countries they were in during the Empire. She picked up on it because when my mother was a girl, the British Empire still existed. The Monty Pythons were talking about their own country's history of empire. For a civilization like the Romans to have flowered so greatly, only to end by the press of barbarians on its borders, at least that's one of the arguments, inspired the English historian Gibbon to write The Fall of the Roman Empire. And for a city like Pompeii to end in an instant, due to volcanic ash, inspired Charles Dickens to write the following in a letter. Stand at the bottom of the great marketplace of Pompeii and look up at the silent streets through the ruined temples of Jupiter and Isis away to Mount Vesuvius and lose count of time in the strange and melancholy sensation of seeing the destroyed and the destroyer making this quiet picture in the sun. Then feel the solitude and deadly lonesomeness of this place, ten thousand times more solemn than if the volcano, in its fury, had swept the city from the earth and sunk it into the bottom of the sea. Charles Dickens, 1845. Pompeii is still a popular tourist spot. Where else can you see a moment in time captured like, well, a mosquito caught in amber? The discovery of the ruins of Pompeii was an invaluable archaeological find. It was an entire city caught intact, captured, so we could see how they actually lived. We can walk the same cobblestone streets they walked on and stand in the same stone doorways they once stood, unchanged. Perhaps you can even hear their voices. They call out to us from small snatches of graffiti still on the walls. Most of the voices are profane, either boasting of sex, begging for votes, and something as human as an accusation. Quote, Landlord, may your lies malign bring destruction on your head. You yourself drink unmixed wine. Water, sell your guests instead. Does this speak of fraud in ancient Pompeii? Wait, here's another, found on another wall. This person could have been your friend, a drinking buddy, down at your neighborhood bar. Quote, Flavius Angrigola was my name. Friends who read this listen to my advice. Mix wine, tie the garlands around your head, drink deep, and do not deny pretty girls the sweets of love. End quote. I swear I know someone just like him today. I think you do too. And then there is the prophetic voice, a voice that speaks the loudest and strangely not only predicts the end of Pompeii, but the end of everything. This graffiti was found in a city that died under flame and ash in 79 AD. Quote, Nothing in the world can last forever. End quote. He knew, of course. It's something that a lot of people know now. It's prophetic simply because it's as true back then as it is today, like King Balazar in the Book of Daniel, who saw the writing on the wall, it's a warning of doom. And the truth of all life is that nothing does last forever. What do we see in the Romans? Do we see what happened to them as a warning for our own civilization? After all, 
the Romans, the Pompeians, the ancients, weren't all that different from us. We know they dreamed and hoped much in the same way as we do now. History separates us. Their pagan beliefs isolate them from us as well. But they were like us. They were, after all, human. They loved, felt pain and joy, had shortcomings, and also displayed the traits of heroes. Things aren't so much different. I see those ancient heroes walking around in 2010. I've seen Hector, Achilles, Jason, Scipio, and they're serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. Every soldier, sailor, marine, and airman needs to have the same grit and determination as any hoplite or Roman legionnaire ever had. And I assure you, they definitely have it. The ancient heroes still live today, and we're not that different. The English people seem to understand their connection with the ancient Romans. The English traced their people going back through Cromwell, Elizabeth I, William the Conqueror, to the first step of a Roman soldier upon the English shore. I have no doubt that when the Roman soldier looked up at the white cliffs of Dover, he saw blue-faced Celts shaking their war shields at him. The Romans dominated the English for only 400 years. That's a mere pittance of time. And out of their entire history, somehow the English think themselves the inheritors of the ideals of Rome and the defenders of classical study and thought. The United States is quite similar. Though never occupied by the Romans, we fought for our freedom from the British and took the same firm belief that we are the inheritors of the ideals of Rome and the same defenders of classical studies and thought. As a result, we have modeled our entire government on Roman ideals and built a capital whose architecture reflects the pillars and buildings of Rome itself. What exactly were we trying to tell the rest of the world when the United States chose the Romans to revere and emulate? The Romans started from a collection of rural farmers and shepherds to a group of people that influenced the world. Sound familiar? The Roman Empire began with a collection of tribes living on the banks of the Tiber. They started as sheep herders, hunter-gatherers, farmers, and by the time the empire reached its zenith, the city of Rome had over one million inhabitants and ruled a vast empire of 60 million people. E publius unum. E publius unum is printed on our money. It stands over our doorways of our public institutions. E publius unum means out of many, one. As the United States moved westward, it expanded into states, swallowing up many by choice, some not by choice. This is not too different from Rome that moved northward up its peninsula. In the United States, newcomers fought for exercise of full citizenship, and in ancient Rome, many vied for the coveted title of citizen. Out of many, one. At one time, a Roman citizen could walk down the city street and see people from all over the world. Out of many, one. Our history is full of expansion, of exclusion and inclusion. Just like the Romans, we had many of the same struggles. Out of many came one. Rome carved out an empire by the force of its legions. The United States has influenced the world, sometimes by its force of arms, true, but mostly through culture and diplomacy. Hollywood has done more than any army or battle to influence the world. The United States has done more helping other countries during times of disaster and to open factories or, in the, or assist in the building of roads than through 
any force of arms could hope to accomplish. Now, don't get me wrong. I firmly believe in the United States military, and it has been through the sacrifice of its veterans that has made a significant difference in the world. If you don't believe me, ask Holland, ask West Berlin, ask South Korea. There's a fight going on right now, keeping the classics a relevant course of study in our colleges. Many believe that it's just not relevant anymore, and I worry that ancient history and the classics will eventually be ignored. But you know, whenever I start to believe this, I find that ancient history is kept alive only by those who are willing to fight for it, and there are many ways to do this. Some academics stand up against heavy attacks on their character to declare that we cannot ignore what is a basic fact, that our country was based on classical study and thought. Others congregate in study groups and read the Odyssey and the original Greek. Others keep museums alive. For instance, the Oriental Museum on the campus of the University of Chicago. This is a unique jewel of antiquities worthy of Indiana Jones himself. Others dress up in armor and weapons of Roman legionnaires and recreate the unique issues of fighting with nothing but sword and shield. They recreate Roman legion encampments and demonstrate the short sword and spear to audiences on Saturday afternoons. They, too, keep history alive in their own way. Some are gamers that reenact battles with tiny soldiers and ships, such as the Battle of Actium, the great naval battle between Anthony and Octavius, where on game boards, tiny ships weigh chance and strength by the throw of a dice, which decides the fate of an empire. That is keeping history alive as well. I hope on future episodes, I can bring you interviews with these historians who keep the past alive. Let's take a break. Here's a little music, and then we'll talk again.
You have been listening to Ancient Rome Refocused. And now for the next exciting segment with your host, Rob Kane. Abraham Lincoln once said, quote, Books serve to show a man that those original thoughts of his aren't very new at all. End quote. Occasionally, on Ancient Rome Refocused, I'm going to pull a book off my shelf to share with you. One of my favorites is The Ghost of Vesuvius by Charles Pellegrino. Pellegrino has authored over 18 books in fiction and nonfiction, and was the scientist who suggested dinosaur cloning, which uh, you may have seen in the movie Jurassic Park. Mr. Pellegrino has an uncanny knack for connecting the dots between events that have thousands or even millions of years separating them. Check out the subtitle of his book. It reads, A New Look at the Last Days of Pompeii, How the Towers Fell, and Other Strange Connections. In the book, Ghost of Vesuvius, Pellegrina takes us back through time. I'm going to take you back in time for just a moment. Originally recorded on September 11th, 2001, in the County of New York, City of New York, State of New York, in conjunction with citywide job number 1-44. Please stand by for a series of messages. Message 1 is a straight radio run received on channels 15 and 17. The message commences at 0800 hours, 46 minutes, and 43 seconds. If you didn't get the same strange feeling at the pit of your stomach like I did listening to the recordings, then you're a much harder person than I am. I remember I I watched the television reports of people running down the street as a huge cloud of dust, grit, cement, paper, whatever the building was composed of was in that cloud, chased them down. I just want you to take away one thought. The fear and pain that they were feeling as they were running away for their lives was not any different 
than what the pain and fear people were feeling back in 79 AD. Just because it was thousands of years ago doesn't make it any less important. Pellegrino, in his book Ghosts of Vesuvius, renders a fascinating study of the Twin Towers and their destruction on 9-11, the way they fell and the laying of debris, and shows similarities to the destruction of Pompeii. There is nothing new under the sun as far as Pellegrino is concerned, and he quotes the Bible to make his point. Quote, The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new, it hath been already of old time, which was before us. End quote. After the Twin Towers fell, he references sightings and visions of the victims of 9-11 and compares those with eyewitnesses at the destruction of Pompeii. A patent attorney claims he saw a figure walk down a hallway and disappear. A rescuer saw a man in a blue suit evaporate before his eyes the moment he came into arm's reach. When we look back at Pompeii, we can read the accounts of Diocrasus, the ancient historian, who recorded that his contemporaries imagined ghostly apparitions in the smoke of Vesuvius. Man is still man, with the same feelings and fears. The lure of the past is strong. As Mark Twain said, quote, Everywhere you see things that make you wonder. How old these houses were before the night of destruction came. Things, too, which bring back these long-dead inhabitants and place them living before your eyes. For instance, the stone steps that lead out of the schools. For ages the boys hurried out of that school. The steps are almost worn through, and the nervous feet that have been dust and ashes for 18 centuries have left their record for us to read today. In the bake shop, the exhumers found nice, well-baked loaves which the baker had not found time to remove from the ovens the last time he left the shop because the circumstances compelled him to leave in such a hurry. Mark Twain, 1875. In his book, Pellegrino, gives us a detailed description of the surge cloud moving across Pompeii like a tidal wave. Houses exploding from the impact, stone columns tipped over, and men being converted to gas and charcoal before their bodies even hit the ground. He is careful to point out that more delicate things survive, such as a set table, a lamp, and by some strange occurrence, a drawer filled with legal documents. I think you'll enjoy the book. The Ghost of Vesuvius connects and jumps back and forth in time. At one point, he is discussing the extinction of dinosaurs by meteor, and in another part, he is laying out the destruction of Hiroshima. He gives us detailed maps of the layout of debris at the World Trade Center after 9-11, and through it all, he is making connections to the past. He writes, Time will have its say, it always does. Well, Pellegrin approves it with this fine study of disasters. When I want to learn what ancient Romans thought or felt, I look to quotations from that time period. They are essentially, well, mini-courses on philosophy and thought. Their own words seem so familiar because the lessons are still relevant today. The other day, my wife and I were getting an ID card made. Displayed next to the desk of the person taking our information was a book titled The Wisdom of the Ancient Greeks, Timeless Advice of the Senses, Society, and the Soul. 
She had it displayed next to her desk like it was on sale in a bookstore. She was proud of that book. It was given to her by her boss, and he had even written an inscription on the flyleaf. We both commented on it, and she showed it to the both of us. I know that she was proud of the fact that her boss thought of enough of her to give her such a book. She said, It speaks to me. It must have spoken to her boss as well to present it as a gift. I found something interesting on the website called Overheard in New York. It went like this. Two street toughs talking to each other. First street tough. What you reading? Second street tough. Plato. My quote today is not from the ancient Greeks, but from the Roman historian Tacitus. He's famous for his biographies of Claudius and Nero. Here's the quote, and by the way, please forgive my Latin. Anne ignotum pro magnifico est. The translation is as follows. We have great notions of everything unknown. Let us keep exploring our great notions of ancient Rome. There is so much we can learn from them. Friends of mine have asked the following question. Rob, do you wish that you could have lived back then? My answer can be found on episode 2 of Ancient Rome Refocused. Check out the next podcast where we will explore and question the difficulties of living during 51 B.C. Many thanks to Rachel Cunliffe and Stephen Merriman for their blog design, and Bob O'Brien for his encouragement and audio advice. And a special thanks to my wife, Dr. Nancy Kane, for suggesting doing this podcast. I think you'll find the next podcast to be exciting. We're going to do a little time traveling. Talk to you soon. You're listening to Ancient Rome Refocused. If you enjoy being challenged, go to our blog, ancientromerefocused.org, and join others discussing today's topic, ancientromerefocused.org, with host Rob Kane. History for the Brave.